You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. Welcome one, welcome all. If you guys are not familiar with the show and this is your first time watching, we're glad to be here with you. We're glad to have you with us as our audience. And if you are returning and you are a fan of the show, thank you once again for your continuous support. So for all of you who are new, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are in essence changing their own reality. So through the show, we'll be speaking to all kinds of people from social change makers, entrepreneurs, industry leaders, business owners, to even artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world, and many of whom spend time here on the Penn campus as well. And by hearing these inspiring stories, we get to get a little glimpse on how everyday people like you and me can change the reality of not just ourselves, but those around us as well. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm super passionate about uncovering those stories of how they're able to do so, so that we can hopefully pick up the lessons and the little uh, bits of gold in between in the sense that we can apply in our own journeys to shorten our own learning curves, to help figure out the things that we want to do with a bit more clarity in a sense and to get started towards our own goals and passions. And the power of stories is something that has personally been a driver in my life. It's made my life all the more richer. And it is the foundation of essentially every single thing that I do. Personally, I actually founded and run a youth movement back at home uh, in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that's called Ascendance, that today collaborates with not just our Malaysian Ministry of Education, but global education partners all around the world to provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and projects that help them discover what they love doing, learn about themselves and the world around them, and start their own careers. And over the years, we've been fortunate to work with over 35,000 students, 900 over schools, um, uh, I think 28 different countries. And the reason we've been able to do all of that has been because of kind individuals who've been willing to share their stories. And it's from those stories that we've actually helped these students be able to craft their own careers, even start their own social enterprises as, as young as eight years old, and do so many more phenomenal things. And stories are just that platform that enables us to get a glimpse into where we can get started, what we can do next. And I hope that just like that, this show is that same platform for all of you, so that you can take the lessons you learn from this session and find a way that you can apply it that is meaningful to you, that hopefully uh, helps you discover a little bit more about yourself and where you're headed next. So if you have anything specific that you want to talk about, any topics, any themes, any conversations that you think would be beneficial to help you change your reality, let us know, of course, and we'll try our best to bring it onto the show. And just like that, today we have someone extremely special for our session today. As you guys know, many of you have been asking, First, to talk a little bit about the world of education in a sense and, and a lot of uh, recent interest i think among our viewers has been to explore that world and today we actually have someone who is an educator by profession and today leads wharton's global youth program team his work focuses on the strategic vision for programming and partnership of wharton global youth uh, in a sense and he also had actually started his career as an educator himself so he actually started his career uh, teaching high school uh, students in a sense, but transitioned to working in higher education full-time in 2006. 
Today, he's committed to connecting the teaching and resources of Wharton faculty directly to high schools and pre-college age students all across the globe. So, and without further ado, let's welcome to our stage, our phenomenal guest speaker, the Executive Director of Wharton Global Youth Programs, Eli Messick. Thank you, Harsha, for that lovely introduction. Oh, thank you. How are you, in a sense? Thank you for joining us on the show. I know you've had a very busy couple of last months. Yeah, no, it's it's been it's been a, an energizing couple of months. You know, I think we had we just wrapped up our summer programs, both residential on campus, you know, here on campus, also our online programs and our new pilot on-site program, which I'm excited to share with you and talk with you about today. Okay, wow. I'm excited to hear about all of that. But before we jump into the amazing things that have been going on this, I would say, last few months and the things that you're always doing and working for high school students, I thought we could kind of turn back the clock in a bit and talk about your experiences. As I mentioned in your introduction, you were someone who started off as a high school teacher, which, if you ask me, is one of the top hardest jobs in the planet in a sense like i'm not joking i'm not joking i think being a teacher is literally the hardest thing that anyone can do and i have so much respect for teachers who are probably the most underappreciated people who literally run the world for us in a sense so first of all thank you for your service that is phenomenal <laughs> thank you but thank no you. i'm serious i'm serious it, like, no, like I, I, I think you're absolutely right i can't agree with you more yeah, so why did you, like, do you know you were going to take on the super hard task of being a teacher? I feel like people don't know that going in, in a sense. What what made you want to do, uh, like, like take that as a profession? You know, I didn't know. I, I didn't know at all. I think as a young person, as a high schooler, I didn't know. I, I, I was fascinated with the humanities, um, art history, history, politics. I thought I was very interested in politics and government and service. Um, and I looked at that, and, you know, I ended up being a history major as an undergraduate, um, and I did a lot of thinking, and I think it really was always sitting there in the back of my head. I don't come from a line of teachers. Many te great teachers I know come from parents or grandparents who were educators who grew up in the education system in that way, seeing having great role models. Um, my parents are are wonderful, and but they're not teachers. They weren't teachers. Nobody in my family was a teacher before I became a teacher. And I think um, the the story that I tell, and I think it really I, I reflected on a lot um, thinking about this, how I ended up in that career. Um, I was doing an internship actually after my junior year of college um, on Capitol Hill for my member of Congress. And, uh, you know, I was approaching my senior year. My parents had come up to visit me in DC and we were sitting and having lunch. And my dad turned to me and said, So you're going to be a senior in college. You're a history major. What are you going to do? And literally, without thinking, like out of a subconscious, I said, I'm going to be a teacher. And he yeah. said, Okay, that's great. How are you do that? And I said, I don't really know, but I'm going to go find out. Um, and I went and I looked it up and I looked around and realized that I probably needed a little bit more education myself. Um, and I went and I pursued, right. Um, I started filling out applications for graduate school and I ended up going to NYU to do a master's in social studies education. And that put me on a path of being a school teacher. Um, something I did for, for a number of years, um, both as a student teacher in New York city and then later as an independent school teacher in Virginia and Delaware, um, really amazing experience. And I think you're right. It was one of the hardest job I had most fulfilling job I ever had. In fact, I think. When I think about it now, um, I was single at the time. I didn't have a family. Um, I was able to put everything into it. Uh, many teachers obviously do that with families too, but I would come home at the end of the day around five, six o'clock at night, and I would take a nap. I would go to sleep for a solid hour um, on the couch or in bed before I could get up and actually start the rest of my evening. And the rest of your evening includes grading, preparing lessons for the next day, but you also have to make dinner. You have to you know, see your- You have a life and friends. at the same time take yeah. care of a bunch of lives, yeah. Yeah, so um, you know, it was really amazing, but exhausting. I mean, amazing work, so fulfilling. 
tell me about the first class you ever taught or the first uh, like group of students you ever taught. Do you remember? Like I know, like like you probably taught like so many students, and you still work with so many students. I but... do. I have a, I have a really great really great story about. It. I, I think about this all the time, and I talk to students about this. So, after my student teaching, obviously, my first full time teaching job was at a great school down in Southern Virginia. I was a young teacher. I was 22 years old. I was fresh out of graduate school. Um, this was the late 90s. Um, you know, technology was slowly getting into the classroom. Mm -hmm. And when I arrived at the school, one of the things they said was like, we had just bought a digital projector, our first digital projector. And we know that you know how to teach with technology. It was part of my interview process was my ability to use technology. We would love for to put this in your classroom and, you know, wow. have you be able to then demonstrate. I'm like, oh, this is excellent. I can totally do this. I mean, we're talking rudimentary here. We're talking about PowerPoints with better maps, right? Instead of the roll down. So I prepared, I wanted to really be able to showcase this and demonstrate as a young teacher, especially to my students, that technology wasn't, that technology could be easily integrated in the classroom. It wasn't special technology time. Mm -hmm. um, and something I'm still committed to. Technology is just another pedagogy. It's another way that we express ourselves and teach and bring ideas to life for students and connect them and show them new, new content. So I set up the projector um, and I set everything up and I tested and I practiced a number of times. I even came in on Sunday to make sure everything worked. I didn't want anything not to work. And first class comes in, I was all ready to go. I was gonna put up my PowerPoint. I loaded everything up, turned on the projector. Everything was booting up perfectly. I had no worries. I went to pull down the screen and the screen fell off the wall and hit me in the face. What? <laughs> oh God. Well, then that was the technology fail. That was the technology. And, and to that day, you know, then you're then you've lost your class. Then the students are just off their chair laughing. I'm somewhat bleeding out of my head for the screen had fallen on the ground. What do you do? You know, you know, and you got to pick it up. What did you do? I'm, I'm so curious. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you just kind of I think I laughed at it. You know, I have a, I have a mm -hmm. colleague now um, in a graduate program that I'm in that believes that you can do a um, a kind of double take, you can kind of do a snare drum and kind of go, ta-da, like it was all planned, which is what I should have done. And the students would have believed it was all part of the plan, but I didn't. I kind of stood up and kind of just kept going, I guess. I, I don't I don't remember. I mean, the, the point was I, the screen fell off the wall and hit me in the head. That was the technology fail. All the things that could have stopped working. Oh, gosh. I, I still have technology fails, like now in 2022, setting up for like literally anything and everything. So I could not imagine the, like you taking so much care and putting it in the yeah. screen. Like, but I'm sure that it was at least the most memorable class your students had as well. Like first day, new new teacher, the other. Oh, okay. Maybe like, I hope so. Or I'm that guy. Or I'm that guy. They're like, hey, I had a teacher who showed up and the screen fell on his head. <laughs> I I doubt it in a sense, but I feel like we don't often look at the process and the care that the teachers put into kind of like shaping the curriculum, shaping the cross sections. What was kind of your process? How did you make sure that the whatever you were teaching was delivered in a way that really resonated with your students in a sense? What, what, what would you do and, and how would you craft your lessons for them? So two stories. I think one about me, you know, I think it's about authentic learning. And that's something we talk about here at the Wharton Global Youth Program is we're connecting the things that students say. I talked to a group of students last week as they were wrapping up their program. And I said to them, one of the things I can tell you about the program you just did here at the Wharton School is you can't say, why do I need this? Right. The question that middle schoolers and high schoolers ask a lot is like, why am I learning this? And we can explain and there's there's important content to be learned. Um, and teachers have good rationale for it. Sometimes it's, it's you know, mandated. But in other ways, a great teacher can explain why you need this and make that connection. And I think in many ways, the great teachers that I work with can explain that. But it, but is it authentic? Is it real to a 15, 16 or 17 year old to say, oh, my gosh, I can see how I need this. 
it's it's what we call authentic learning. And I think it's something we do every day here at the Wharton School. But when it comes to process, you know, again, I come back to that first teaching job I have and thinking about a great teacher. So across the hall from me, there was a life sciences teacher and she was this remarkable teacher, had a 25 year career, really what I would call a master teacher. And I remember one day staying late and doing my prep, as you do, as you talk about the care that you put into this. And she came across the hall and said, hey, do you want to ride home? She knew I rode my bike and it was raining. And she's like, do you want to, I'll, I'll give you a ride home. I'm like, thanks so much. She's like, let me just wrap up stuff in my classroom. And so I kind of wrapped up what I was doing. I walked over to her room. She was writing in a binder and then she folded it up and she had a biology lab. She was life sciences and she had this kind of somewhat lab in her classroom. She took her binder, she closed it up. She opened her refrigerator, she put it in the crisper drawer where the vegetables go, she closed it and we left and we walked out and I finally turned to her and I said, I said, I have to ask you, why did you just put your binder in the refrigerator? And I was waiting for some bad joke, you know, it keeps the ideas fresh, but, but that's not what came. She said, well, that's my daily plans. And the way that I plan every day is I write down what I was teaching. I do reflection on the previous day. I write down what we're doing. And I put all the worksheets and assignments in a, in a file with that and I close it all up. And then each year I can go back and see what I taught in order, look at the reflection, pull the materials out I need. So it's everything that I teach all in one place. And she said, and my biggest fear is that something will happen to that. She said, and if there's a fire in the building, I will lose all of that paper. And if I keep it in the refrigerator or there's a flood, it will be safe. So she used it as a safe box because she was so concerned about this teaching material that she locked it in the refrigerator every night. That is the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. I think Absolutely I've got amazing. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> Like I've got, I've got a couple of things that I think should be in my refrigerator now. Right. Then you, yeah. If the fire, it'll survive your refrigerator, I guess. I mean, I you know. I don't think I can shove my laptop there every night, but other than that, I think I've got a couple of things that, that the refrigerator could help with. It's the ultimate backup system, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like in a in a world where the projector can fall down and hit your head, like, like, yeah, like, maybe yeah. only backup. Exactly. But okay, very cool. And and how does that like like how did that kind of reflect in your own teaching process? How do you decide to like 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 again like how did that either story impact you, or how did you start seeing that same feeling or that same impact in the work that you were doing? So I think it gave me from the early stages an admiration for great teachers and master teachers and watching master teachers work. Right. And I love to this day, I love watching great teachers teach. Um, you know, I did this reflection. I talk about my own reflection on how I arrived at my career, but I also think it's the people that influenced me. Um, I recently had the chance to go back to my high school and give the commencement address this year, which was what? really fun. Yes. Yeah, it was really great. Um, but in the process of writing that, you know, you, you reflect on these great teachers you had. Um, and I think great teaching is such needs to be admired. And I love watching great teaching and talking to great teachers. As you're asking me these questions about my process, I think about great educators and master teachers and how they go about connecting with their students and, and, and thinking about them and planning and, and thinking about what they're going to teach and how they're going to present it. And so I really think it's about it's about master teachers and my admiration for them and watching them work. No, I definitely agree. And I think that the, the whole those years we spend in school are so ingrained in our brains. Like I know adults who even until today have either nightmares or dreams about being back in high school in a sense and being late for exams and being in class. So it's definitely something that I think is so deep rooted. And and now you've made me so curious. I've got to ask, what was the most memorable class or session that you had in high school that, that you think influenced the way that you are today? That's a it's a great question. So um, you know, it's funny, that's it's it's not quite that question. Every single time I interview somebody for a position with us, whether it's a teaching position or it's a staff position with us, the same question I ask, which people tell me when when I when we end up hiring somebody 
and we kind of reflect on this or get to know each other was that was the hardest question I've ever been asked in an interview is I asked somebody to tell me the story of their greatest teacher. Ooh. Um, and I think in many ways for our work and education, I want someone who's been reflective, someone who can think about that, who can explain and tell that story to me, someone who can connect with that. So when I think of great teachers, people that I talked about includes individuals who brought us outside the classroom, who taught us beyond the classroom. And it wasn't because they ran a great field trip or took us somewhere exciting, although that's included in it, but someone who built that connection. You know, I think about great teachers I have that may have sat down with me at the lunch table and had a conversation. Teachers who recommended, a book, who pulled me aside and say, hey, I know you brought this up in class, but, um, you know, let me tell you more about this book um, that I read. I think you'd be really interested in, or, you know, you challenged this point that I made. And I want to follow up with you on that. I want to look further into that with you. So those are the individuals I think about, the individuals who brought sense beyond the classroom who continued the conversation with with me um, and were able to mentor me and connect with me um, beyond beyond the typical classroom and typical teaching. Share, share with us one story of a teacher that comes to mind or a class that comes to mind that, that, that you think was exemplary from your point of view. Yeah, so um, when I was in middle school, we had a science teacher. I'm not a science person, right? It didn't make me fall in love with science. Um, not social is, science, science. Oh. Social science, yeah, social science and humanities. But, um, you know, I think about I had a science teacher, and this was 1987, 1988, right? And he did a whole unit on AIDS. And this was early stages of the AIDS epidemic, right? It was impacting different populations around the United States and around the world. But he went in depth on this topic. And I remember... Now, like, you know, thinking about it at the time, taking my notes, doing the quiz, but connecting with it, you know, in hindsight, we were on the cutting edge. Here was something that was in the news every day. It was politicized um, in a very negative way against a specific population of individuals, but it was being demystified for me as a middle schooler. It was being explained as a virus. It was being explained as it was a contagion that, that could have impacted anybody based on, you know, on these choices that you needed to make. And so... His ability to take and use education to demystify something that's been been improperly politicized really had an impact on me and really kind of opened my eyes to that. Oh, very, very true. And and I think that, as you said, the great greatest teachers are the ones that make whatever you're learning relatable to a 16-year-old. Authentic learning, right? Authentic learning, right? I can, I can open the newspaper, turn on the news and, and see that this was, was important. And I can have a conversation about it. But that's also a little tough, like like from a teacher's country, and you are a teacher, so weigh in on this in a sense that there is a chunk of, of, of the things that you need to impart that is syllabus, that is kind of like the grades, that is the SATs related stuff. And then there's this whole other world of information and literally the whole world of, of possibilities that you can also bring in, whether it's from the news, whether it's something that's, that's happening or in the real world. As a teacher, how do you go about making the decisions of what do you want to teach and then finding a way to combine all of that and impart it to your students? Well, I think it's not even your choices as a teacher. I think it's about creating opportunities for students, right? And so thinking about learning mm -hmm. opportunities, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot since I joined higher education as a learning journey, is helping students understand that your learning is not confined to your 13 years of primary and secondary school, four years of undergraduate, and then X number of years of graduate school, and then you're done learning, right? That it's a journey. Um, you know, that we have to continue to add to learn that that learning happens in the in-between spaces. And I think in many ways, that's what we do at Global Youth is we provide learning in the in-between spaces. Summer is an in-between space, right? Summer is not a time to turn your brain off, right? Summer, as we just wrapped up, we just had all these students on our campus from around the world who made a choice to keep learning. 
um, to, to add to their portfolio, their learning portfolio, their learning CV to say, this is content that I learned. And so I think that that's, that's the critical stuff there is, is, is helping students understand that it's a learning journey um, and that we're all on that journey that we're constantly learning. It's, you know, we used to call it, or we it's still called lifelong learning, but really I don't love that phrase. It's a learning journey that we're on and we're going to have different stops on that journey. We're going to pick up different experiences in that journey. There's going to be bumps on that journey. Um, there's going to be parts of that journey which are a grind, and there's going to be parts of that journey that are a joy. Yeah, yeah that, that is true in a sense. And how, and as a teacher, in, a set, in, in many ways, I think, as I said earlier, and as I alluded to very, like I would say, unsubtly, this whole kind of responsibility of bringing all of this and creating that, that love of learning in students uh, weighs very much on, on the things that you do every day in the classroom and all of that. And at the same time, you've got a hundred things to do. You've got grading, you've got this, you've got that and all. So what do you think from your point of view is the thing that students don't see from an educator's point of view? What what if you could tell one thing to all the annoying 16-year-olds from then and now, what would it be in a way? I think that the bottom line is they, they care about what they're doing. I mean, I think it's very clear that they care about what they're doing. I don't think, I don't see too many 16-year-olds that are annoying. I think 16-year-olds are 16-year-olds are just at different stages in their own journey. You know, I think just being 16 yeah. um, we you know teachers work hard it's, it's a profession i think that they're professionals it's something i talk to teachers about too and i think um these are professional educators this is their career mm -hmm. they do it they, they care about their profession they work hard at their work um and so it's, it's a professional approach that's very cool and moving to kind of like the the next part in your career you also started like moved into higher education i think about 2004 uh, at Penn, actually, yay. Yep. And um, you actually, I think, when in our previous conversation, you mentioned that you started by consulting on some of their projects and all of that that uh, was, I think, in their public policy uh, kind of uh, division and all. What was kind of like your, your motive for kind of moving careers a little bit and, and steering in a different direction from teaching in high school to trying out something new? So I had the opportunity to come to work in summers at Penn at the Annenberg Public Policy Center, where I did some lesson plan development. I did some web development for educational websites um, and worked on some really exciting projects. And what where my eyes opened even wider was having been out of higher ed because I was a student in higher ed for about seven or eight years at that point and coming back in and coming to a place like Penn, you see the brilliance, right? You see the absolute brilliance that is happening by our faculty. Our faculty are generating massive amounts of content, cutting edge ideas, um, and they're doing amazing work in lots of different fields. And I thought, oh my gosh, I want these people in my classroom. How do I bring them into my classroom? And I think that's really what set me upon this path was creating opportunities to bring the leading thinkers, the latest cutting edge knowledge into a K-12 classroom. And how do we how do we kind of take out the middleman of of whether it's a textbook or a mandated curriculum or whatever and say how do we how do we connect the youngest students or any student really to the world's greatest thinkers and you know this campus happens to be full of them you really can't walk across this campus without bumping into one of them and so i thought let's you know how do we bring this how do we how do we connect these two together no very true and, and this is something that, that i personally it's, it resonates so much with with the very personal ethos that education should be linked to the real world, should be linked to the people who are currently making decisions and making things happen. And that is very much the work that you are doing right now with the with the youth program, in a sense. Tell us a little bit about how you started shaping the, the curriculum and shaping kind of the program uh, for the summers uh, uh, with, again, bringing in kids from all around the world. How does something like that even begin? And how do you how do you even begin to, to 
design or, or kind of put together, a, a, I would say, a summer program for such a huge range of people in a sense. Yeah, I think in many ways, though, it's it's the curriculum is shaped by our faculty, right? Again, it comes back to our remarkable faculty who are generating this new content, generating this new knowledge. Our job is really to build a stage for them to stand on and help an audience get into the room, right? That's that's our work. Um, and so we're, we're identifying what's the best possible stage for them to stand on. Um, in the case of a pandemic, it's online stages um, when we can't be on campus or it's on campus um, when we can be on campus. And so creating those spaces for them to connect with the students and then helping students learn about this. So, you know, we understand the market. We, we understand high school kids. We understand what they're looking for, whether it's a calendar, whether it's how long should a program be. Um, and, and so we work with our faculty and we advise our faculty on kind of just basic parameters. You know, the, the, the Penn faculty, the Wharton faculty are remarkable teachers. Watching them work, talk about sitting in the back of the room and I have the honor and privilege to watch our faculty teach all the time um, is really, really a privilege. You've had some of them on your show. Um, who yeah, I, I mean, I had some. I've been in classes with some of them, so I, I, you know, I yeah, you know. of course, you've been in classes with some of them too. I mean, it, these these are remarkable people. So we are simply just setting up a stage, um, and and bringing the audience into the room for them. And so what we want to tell students about these opportunities is, look, they're non credit. Most of our stuff is non credit. We have a credit program as well. We have a dual enrollment program, but majority of our work is non credit. It's a chance again for students to add something to that learning journey. I think I'm, I'm, I'm 15, 16, 17 years old. I think I'm interested in business. I think I'm interested in finance or marketing or analytics, but have I had a class in it? Probably not. And you probably haven't had one like we're going to offer you. And so this is an opportunity for you to come and spend two or three weeks with us on our campus or online or in one of our locations around the country to dig deep into this topic and to say to yourself as a 17 year old, oh my gosh, I really do love this. I really do love finance or I really do love analytics or I want to do business leadership or I want to do business education. I want to study business for the next four years and make that choice. Look, we also tell students, if you come in and spend two weeks with us doing finance and you realize, yeah, this is not for me, I'd rather do marketing or I'd rather do medicine. That's a success. That's a great decision you made. Again, that learning journey is going to have lots of forks and twists and turns on the road. If you take a wrong turn, it might be a long time before you can come back around. Um, but it may also, you also have the opportunity to preview that turn before you take it, which is what yeah. I think in many ways what we offer. And again, like it's better that they come for a course like this and they shape up what they're interested in before enrolling into a four-year degree program where, where yeah, they're kind right. of a little bit more right. committed in a sense. Right. So, so echoing the sentiment, a part question, toughest question you'll ever have to answer. You do so many programs, hybrid, in-person, on the San Francisco campus I saw recently. That's right. In all your years with with Wharton and Penn, what has been the favorite program of yours that you've seen run? It could be something that, that you thought was creative, exceptional in the sense, what's been your favorite? And I won't tell the rest. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's a great question. I, and I have no problem talking, but I think there's so many, I mean, obviously all of our stuff is great. I can, I can tell you the highs and lows of each of them in many ways. But I think one of the things that I'm most proud of that we're still at the very early stages in developing is back in the summer of 2020, when we all went online, Right. We had the opportunity, you as, as, as an undergraduate and your undergraduate peers know that there was a pivot over spring break. Yeah, essentially. Right. Faculty were told, don't come back. Students were not coming back. You're now online educators. That was really hard. Right. Because you had faculty and I know I know the faculty and I know our staff support for them had five to seven days to prepare. Whether it was getting the necessary gear, whether it was thinking about how I'm going to present this, whether it was understanding how the technology worked, whether it was understanding how am I going to connect and support my students. Those are all huge things that takes years of prep that had to be done in five days. 
we were fortunate because this was, you know, the silver lining in all this was it was March. Our first programs were starting in June. So we had all of three months to prepare, right? Which And so we sat down with our staff virtually on Zoom and we started thinking about what are the programs we could put online? What do they look like? We were talking to our faculty support. We're talking to our instructors about this. And we said, okay, we can move this online. This probably doesn't adapt to online. We'll build, we'll adjust this program. We'll think about doing this. We'll do this training. But one of the things that quickly rose to the surface on all of our minds was, why do we do these programs? What is the educational value of our summer programs? And one of the things that I've been saying since I started doing this work is actually there's, there's a double learning goal in our programs. Mm -hmm. One, you're coming to learn the topic. You're having the chance, as we talked before, to study with the world's greatest minds, to study with our faculty, but to meet and meet peers from around the world, to study and put yourself academically and engage in a topic you probably don't get in high school or to engage deeper in that topic. But the second thing you learn in our typical dorm-based program is what is college like, right? What's it mean to meet someone else from around, from outside my zip code, to learn with them, to be in a small group with them, to, to visit a college campus, to study all that a college campus has to offer, to take learning into your own hands and make those decisions. What else do I want to do? How do I ask for help from an instructor who might be in a larger group setting for me? These are all lessons that we teach in our programs. And when we put our programs online, how do we teach that second goal? We can't have the kid live in the dorm, right? You Although in group work, they will meet somebody else. They're not going to have the chance to walk on Locust Walk. They're not going to have the chance to wander the Penn Library and see all that it has to offer. They're not going to have the chance to say, you know what, this afternoon, I'm going to choose to go to that guest lecture that you're offering because I have some free time. That's not something you can do in the online space. So what we did was we developed an online community. We took all of our students in online that were doing online learning courses with us in the summer of 2020, and we said, you're doing two or three weeks with us in an online synchronous course. You're going to do two hours of Zoom a day. You're going to have assignments. You're going to do group work. You're going to do simulations, all in this great online format. But at the same time, what we're going to offer you is, in parallel to that, we're going to offer you 10 weeks of community. We put all of the students in our program, regardless of which two-week session they were in, and we had 1,500 or so students sign up for five different two-week sessions. And we said, we're going to put you in a second Canvas course that we're going to call the Global Youth Meetup, which we shortened to the gym. <laughs> right? So okay. after class, after class, where do you go, Archa? You go to the gym, right? <laughs> I don't. I should. I'll, I'll we go all to the should. Gym. We all should. But many students go to the gym. It's a place you can, whether yeah. you work out or not, you can hang out, right? So we oh, create a virtual community. In this virtual community was a mixture of a 1,000 students. And we had challenges and we had message boards. We did Friday night movie nights where everyone watched the same Netflix show. And then you talked about it. We brought the Penn band in. They did live performances once a week virtually on Zoom and taught the students the different Penn songs. We brought the library in to do a library tour. Our TAs who were still on campus did walking tours with their iPhone up Locust Walk. And students had the chance to meet each other, to get to know each other, to learn informally from each other the same way you would in the hallway or dormitories. And so this is an area that I'm fascinated by, right? When we went online, we thought about the courses. But when you go online, you also have to think about the university. And the community. What about all that learning that happens when you stand up and class is over and you walk down the hall and you see a bulletin board that has, a, has something advertising, something you might be interested in? Or the person next to you said something interesting in class and you walk out of class and you say, hey, that was really interesting what you said. Let's get a cup of coffee and chat. <laughs> has that happened to you? I mean, yeah, more than the actual learning in class at times. So, yeah. But in your online classes, you're not afforded that opportunity, whether it's, yes, there's great instructors out there doing really dynamic stuff with online tools. But at some point, 
December or something, the, the fall course will end and it will turn off. So the gym in many, so if you're asking my favorite, the gym is currently my new fascination. The idea of helping students learn online in communities in asynchronous spaces with synchronous moments that are not time delineated by courses or semesters, but, but building a virtual campus in a way is really where my fascination lies at the moment. All right. I never thought I'd heard myself say this, but yes, I think the gym does sound the most interesting and the most fascinating. It's my kind of gym too. I hear you. <laughs> Amazing. And if we wind down this conversation, and first of all, you, you before this call, you said, oh, I don't think like that you really have much to talk about. You're a total liar. And, and I'm, I'm so upset now oh. that, because I just have so many things that I want to ask. I'm glad we're on the internet with you calling me a liar. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Just like for everyone. Yeah. Okay. Um, but one thing that, that in your opinion, since as we, as we kind of taper down the conversation, what would, you've been an educator, you've been someone in, in both like, like higher education in, in high schools, in a sense, you studied this all the way up to the, your master's degree. What do you think has been the most important element of education, bar the syllabus, bar the actual things that people like to say? What, what do you think is the one thing that makes education stick with people? I think it's the people you meet, right? These, 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 this social capital you develop, right? This ability to build connections. Um, and a great teacher will connect students together and will connect them to that teacher, right? So the teachers that I still call and email and talk with and watch teach and, and are excited to see their successes and, and give them new resources to teach with, this is, this is the real value of education. It's, 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 it's human interaction, right? So you're building with each other. Um, if I'm successful in my course and I contribute to that course, whether as a student or teacher, then the other people in that course are also successful. For educators, are there, how do we harness that? What can we do is to, to kind of... I wouldn't say improve ourselves. I mean, most teachers that I know already have a lot on their plate, but what can they do to essentially start thinking about things a little bit differently to foster that that feeling, that social capital among students? Let go. You don't need to stand in front of the classroom, right? Let us, you know, let us add the student voice. Um, mm -hmm. Encourage the student voice to be in that room to let them bring it out, let them guide the conversation, advise them, give them ideas, feed them content, watch the connections they build, celebrate those connections, celebrate that voice. Amazing. Very, very well said. So last question before we wrap up. Again, very upset that we're here. Like, really thought, like, like, really, like, like totally blaming this on you. Um, for anyone want, interested in the work that you guys do it, um, and, and looking to connect, looking at how they can attend some of your programs for high schoolers or educators who maybe want to find out more, what's the avenue? How do they reach out? How do they get connected? Wharton Global Youth, um, just a quick search on your favorite search engine, Wharton Global Youth. If you visit the Wharton webpage, wharton.upenn.edu, we're right there on the top. It says youth program right before undergraduate, after faculty. You can click on us there. Um, scroll to the bottom. You can subscribe to our newsletter. We produce content all the time. We're on all the social media platforms except TikTok. We don't dance um, at Wharton Youth. Um, so check us out. We, you know, one of the more amazing spaces that we are is LinkedIn. We really started pushing LinkedIn this summer to watch high school kids use LinkedIn as another area. Again, this community <laughs> building, um, it's fascinating to see, um, we have over almost 1500 followers on our LinkedIn global youth page. Um, check it out. I mean, a great place. If you're out there looking for ways to engage amazing high schoolers, that's the place to look for them. Um, you can find them there, but for everything that we're doing, all of our contents on our website at Wharton Global Youth at globalyouth.wharton.upenn.edu or just a quick search for Wharton Global Youth. All right, very cool. And with that, thank you so much for joining us for this interview. I had lots of fun talking. It was fun. I, hey, very fun. I love talking about teaching and, and learning and, and our amazing work and the faculty who do such an amazing job on our behalf. 
Yep, and I really appreciate you coming and sharing with us. To all students who are, I, I think, coming soon back on campus, uh, make sure you guys like give a shout out, say hi. Yeah, our undergraduates, we would love to. You know, undergraduates too. Quick shout out to them. Just because you're not you're not in high school anymore, we we have we hire TAs all the time to work with us. We always are looking for undergraduates to engage with us. If you're interested in education, wherever you are at Penn, you know, look us up, connect with us. We have great opportunities for you. Go do that. Yeah. And All right. thank you so much once again for being on the show. And with that, My we'll end thanks for having me. Yeah. And we really appreciate you taking the time. To our audience, thank you guys for tuning in as, as always. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you let us know, leave a comment, like, watch it again. And we'll see you at 10 p.m. on Thursdays every week. So see you again next week. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.